just sent a code isn't that sweet of you you've only been causing this problem microsoft here is your code okay so many answers we may never know too many questions get on with the show time for the chorus only this bus it's true Open the podcast doors, Hal. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. Once again, to the show we love to bring you, Kubrick's Universe. Okay, question. What do Blade Runner, The Magnificent Ambersons, Cinema Paradiso, and Brazil have in common? Answer? They've all been re-edited after their initial theatrical releases. Okay, follow me here. Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut was originally released in the U.S., on July 16th, 1999. Lamentably, the maestro's final film was more or less received by audiences and critics alike as somewhat disappointing. There was a lingering sense that, after a 12-year absence of having a new Stanley Kubrick film in theaters, fans were, for better or worse, forced to accept that Eyes Wide Shut would indeed be his swan song. Irrespective of all we do or do not know conclusively, there does still seem to be an ongoing internet query over whether the cut of Eyes Wide Shut, which Kubrick submitted to Warner Brothers just days before his passing, would have indeed been the final cut he actually chose. The film was still roughly four months away from release after all. So let's look back. In 1968, Kubrick 
did remove about 20 minutes of film from 2001 A Space Odyssey, and he did so after its premiere screenings, saying, It does take a few runnings to decide finally how long things should be, especially scenes which do not have narrative advancement as their guideline. Then in 1980, he removed what was the originally intended final scene of The Shining, again after the film's initial U.S. release, and then a further 24 minutes for what is still referred to to this day as the European cut of the movie. So it's not hard to imagine that Kubrick might in fact have implemented some changes to Eyes Wide Shut during the four-month period between his untimely passing and the release of the film had he lived. Now, of course, no one will ever really know, but a young actor and filmmaker from Texas actually went and made his own passion project out of curiosity and a desire to see about the possibilities of making some cuts of his own to Eyes Wide Shut. His name is Marshall Allman. And before we get ahead of ourselves and or prejudge, I'd like to share this quote from him, as it seems to be a worthy crucible. Quote, I am not trying to do what Kubrick would have done, but instead seeing what changes were even possible without losing the essence of the film, end quote. His unauthorized edit runs at 120 minutes, having trimmed 40 minutes from the officially released version. And Marshall has made it available for anyone to watch at EyesWideCut.com. And as he explains on his website, quote, It was in the spirit of never say no to an idea that I decided to make the edit to Eyes Wide Shut, not only as an homage to my favorite filmmaker, but also as a personal challenge to myself as an editor and a storyteller, end quote. All good. Sounds cool, right? Anyway, here we go. We spoke with Marshall Allman in July 2018. Hey, Marshall. How are you, man? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, brother. Um, I want to get right into some questions, if I may. Yeah, please. Yeah, cool. So you've, you've been acting now for several years. Just uh, give our listeners a bit of a background on your uh, journey as an actor so far. Yeah, I arrived at, uh, I arrived at acting uh, in a roundabout kind of way. I grew up actually wanting to be a soccer player or a football player for you, Stephen. Uh, that was my dream. That was my pursuit. That was my passion. Equally passionate, though, I was I was pursuing art. So uh, visual arts, just painting, drawing, um, whatever whatever medium I could get my hands on, I would dive in. Well, my soccer career uh, hit a dead end at an inopportune time, and I wound up at a talent search for acting, which was really weird because I'd never acted before, but they had us reading monologues from a breakfast club, which I had watched nearly every weekend since I was like eight or nine on television. So I knew the monologue by rote and uh, had a great response and had this opportunity to, to move to LA with, with a manager. And I thought, well, if I can't be a soccer player, then I'll be an artist. And if I'm going to be an artist, that means I need to move to New York or LA, preferably New York. Obviously, it's, it's a more esteemed place to be from if you're an artist. But I, I knew I was going to be poor. And so I thought, well, hey, maybe I can make money doing acting and, 
and continue my art and pursue my art so I won't be the poor, starving artist, as it were. Right, right. Right. Which is, which is a brilliant idea, clearly thought up by uh, an 18-year-old. And um, so I moved to L.A. to pursue acting to support my art career. And when I got to L.A. and d- started taking acting classes and diving into the art of acting, I realized how amazing it was that fortuitously it was this it was this craft that combined art and physicality. So the physicality of sports that I loved and the adrenaline rush of sports that I loved, I could now do I could now do uh, in acting and still combine it as an art. Uh, so I became really obsessed. I thought, I mean, the basic idea was why paint when I could be the painting? And that was, that was the essential idea. So yeah, I hit the ground running and uh, just started training and I just became completely obsessed. And at the same time, uh, I became completely obsessed with film. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, that was where my acting career started. And I've been very fortunate to to actually live as an actor for for all this time. And I, I haven't since painted or drawn or uh, done any of that because I became so obsessed with filmmaking in my spare time. Well, it's, you know, as I've uh, said previously on the show, it's a good philosophy to kind of go where the river takes you. That seems to be what happened with me. The big question, of course, we have to ask, uh, you know, is that uh, you apparently auditioned for uh, Mr. Tarantino recently for uh, a part in uh, his upcoming film. I believe it's to play uh, Charlie Manson. Is that correct? I cannot confirm or deny. Ooh. That's that's actually that's actually true. I've actually I've actually signed my name away on that one. Wow. Very cool. Okay, well there you have it, listeners. A non-exclusive. I mean, it will be it. W- it wouldn't take uh, a long time to figure out whether I whether I got the part or not, or whether I auditioned at all. Right. We'll see. Well, forgive me for having asked, but uh, I thought it would be okay to do so at least, and you couldn't say anything or nothing, which you did. So, <laughs> <laughs> but now you've also written and directed a bunch of your own projects. Uh, in addition to your acting career, you want to tell our listeners a bit about that? Yeah, well, funny enough that actually one of my projects is the reason why I stumbled onto this whole uh, Eyes Wide Cut project to to begin with. I I uh, I created a short film series um, called Marriage in Short, and it's a five part series on the comedy of matrimony. So the whole idea of marriage as a as this contained farce um, that we all willingly play and get wrapped up in and become these other people and uh, some of us some of us our marriages survive and some of them don't uh, but it proved to me something I'm very passionate about uh, I I'm married twelve years and uh, I actually love marriage warts and all so I was um, I was doing research on other films that had existed about marriage, which of course led me to Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, I rewatched it, you know, got really into it, started researching as you do with a Kubrick film, researching all the milieu surrounding the film. And, um, and that's when I, I stumbled on this article that proposed that maybe Kubrick wasn't finished with Eyes Wide Shut, that it wasn't the film that he wanted us to see. Um, and that struck such a chord in me 
that I immediately rewatched the film and found absolutely I, I was like I it was I was compelled I was like I, I literally I think I slept like I think I slept like six hours in uh, over three days just just maniacally editing the film um it was really intense it was really really intense but I came became instantly obsessed it was like this mystery and this idea that of and I got to inter like apply all my interpretation of the film and my instinct for how the movie went. It was just, it was an amazing experience for me personally. And when I was finished, I was so surprised at, at, at how well it, it came together. I couldn't believe because I didn't have any of the original materials. You know, I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't have the tracks, you know, I didn't have um, outtakes. I didn't have any, any of the other things. So for it to come together as well as it did, I was, I was, I couldn't believe it. It felt like it wanted to be edited, to be honest with you, which made me feel weird <laughs> and really crazy. And so I tried to share it, tried to share it with a few people. And um, of course, I was asking for like five hours of their time of, you know, of course, they'd have to rewatch Eyes Wide Shut and then watch my version or or the inverse it actually works really well. Um, and no one did until like nine months later, one of my friends that I asked was, um, said, hey, I, I rewatched Eyes Wide Shut. I'm ready to watch your version. And um, that compelled me to go back and go, hey, wow, I edited I edited all this whole thing. And was it any good? Did Is it is it what I thought it was? Is it is it worth its salt? Because I was so nervous now that he was ready to really ready to watch it. And I had all this time to kind of separate myself from it. Uh, and that's when I I dove back in and started to research everything about the creation of the film, the novella that it's based on, uh, and, uh, and really start to analyze what I had done in those 72 hours in London, actually. Um, and, uh, and that's when I started to kind of go, okay, is this viable? Could this, does this work? Or was I just dreaming? <laughs> wow. That's okay. Yeah. But that must have been a strangely satisfying feeling because as a Kubrick fan, you know, you're kind of, uh, uh, experimenting, uh, you know, in the maestro's domain, the master himself. Yes. And then, you know, and yeah, I could completely, I mean, it's not something I would think to undertake just because I would find the prospect of getting it right too daunting, but that's just me. And you obviously, had something in, in an inner voice telling you to proceed. And it's, and it's good that you did, man. Uh, but yeah, that line, was, because if, if a, you're, if you're happy with it, that's why I say that it's good that you did. If the bottom line is you satisfied yourself as an artist. I did. And that was, that was kind of the, the, the whole crux of the thing is I just had this instinct and I didn't do it for anyone to see it. Actually, the only reason why people it's public is kind of a roundabout uh, event. Um, so I, I originally cut it just just for myself. Um, and then I sat on it. I mean, I literally it didn't from the time that I cut it to the time that it, it, I released it publicly it was about a year. Um, and uh, and and there was good reason for that, because I was terrified on all fronts. Like once I'd done it, the thought of it being seen and 
released publicly was was terrifying to me because I would have to answer for what I'd done. Um, and editing, if you've ever edited before, it is not a intellectual exercise and it's not only an emotional exercise. It's a, it's a full body instinctual driven thing that is, it's, it's consuming. Um, and yes, it involves, uh, your intellect and yes, it involves your emotions, but an editor without a vision or a, um, an inspiration or an instinct is dead in the water. It just becomes like the hands and feet of somebody else's vision, you know? Uh, and honestly, that's the worst place to be as an editor is just feeling like you're, you're just sweeping the floor. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, Steven and I have talked about that. He, he does a lot of video editing and he's, you know, quite the expert at it uh, from my vantage point. I've edited my own uh, videos, mo- you know, mostly iMovie and mostly short little vignettes I do for the amusement of my friends and myself. But, uh, you know, I get it completely what you described about it being a full body thing. And it is entirely intuition driven. Um, it, it can be like anything else where you can think your way through the process when the solution is to feel your way. Right, exactly. And then though it, there was the initial 72 hour cut that I did. And then, and then once, once it was sort of determined that it was going to be released publicly, um, that's when I went back and was like, okay, became a, I wouldn't say a scholar on it because I'm definitely not a scholar, um, but a major, major enthusiast. I don't know. <laughs> I became obsessed with finding out if if these cuts do hold water or if they are viable. Um, when you consider Kubrick as an artist, Kubrick, his films, and the creation of Eyes Wide Shut, um, which has been really cool to watch. Eyes Wide Shut become more popular uh, since I started this project. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has. I want to touch upon that, but I want to ask, what, when did you first see Eyes Wide Shut? Do you remember what year, how old you were, whatever? Yeah, it came out in uh, 99, and I was a freshman in high school then, so I'd heard of it. Um, obviously, it was it, it was a sensation. It was everywhere. Um, but I didn't see it until actually I moved to LA uh, four years later to be an actor. And I, I used to frequent Amoeba. Uh, Amoeba um, is a record shop in LA. And that's when I became obsessed with film and I amassed a huge DVD collection and obviously got my Kubrick collection. And I saw Eyes Wide Shut the first time. And the first time I saw it, it just struck me as this, like, I don't know. It was, it was, it was, it, honestly, it, w- it was a mystery to me. It was like a dream. Um, and my recollection of it was like a dream, but it, of all the Kubrick films, I related to it the most. Um, and I found it m- the most personable one. Um, and then cut to later getting married at a young age and then revisiting it. I was like, ah, Yes, this is, and it is, it is my favorite Kubrick film, though. It's not the first one I saw. The first one I saw was Dr. Strangelove. 
I was um, going to ask, yeah, what was the first Kubrick film you saw? How how old were you when you saw the, uh, Strange Love? Uh, gosh, I, I was in middle school, and we used to, uh, me and my buddy, we used to walk from his house to Blockbuster and just, like, scour it. And a friend of ours, uh, she came from a more um, educated family, I guess, or a, a scholarly family. Her father is a, is a, is a famous uh, novelist. And uh, so she had talked about Dr. Strangelove with such a, with such reverence, you know, you sort of encounter the reputation of Kubrick's films before you, unless of course you saw it in theaters and, but even then I think it's true that you, 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 you encounter sort of the, the surrounding buzz around a Kubrick film before you, and you actually watch it. Very few people stumble on a Kubrick film and go, what is this? I have nothing, no idea what it's about. Um, and so it was very much true for me with Dr. Strangelove. And I remember watching that and just, it opened a whole world for me of what you, what, what humor could be. Um, and I just couldn't believe it. I was, I was, it was, ah, it just had all the marks of what now I see as a Kubrick film of like this heightened reality. It was amazing. It's, it's a good point about this stumbling. It's, it's, it is rare, but um, the people I've spoken with who had that experience, nonetheless, do have a story to tell like they took away you know an experience from having stumbled on it i was i was having uh dinner with my uncle charlie about five six months ago and uh we were talking kubrick and he said you know my buddy uh dragged me to see this movie barry linden because he was saying oh it's the guy who made 2001 a space odyssey and he's my favorite director. And um, my Uncle Charlie told me that when they came out of the theater, that his friend, who was all amped up to see the new Kubrick film, was like, oh, I didn't really like it. It was so slow. It was disappointing. <laughs> and to this day, it's my Uncle Charlie's favorite Kubrick film. He came out of it, like, couldn't stop thinking about it. And I think he said he went back, like, two or three days later to see it again. Wow. I know so that, you uh, know, he stumbled upon it. And there's, you know, his experience and it, the memory stuck with him. 43 years later. Barry Lyndon to me is like a novel on film. And, and even despite its length and its deliberate pace, I have never once as an editor thought, Oh, I want to cut into that. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, the, uh, the voiceover technique he used in that one was going to be in eyes wide shut. Actually, if the, uh, the original, I have the original treatment, uh, I say treatment because Kubrick didn't want it in a uh, typical screenplay format. Um, but I think the one I have posted on my website, if you go and look is the, is a screenplay format of the original treatment and you can see the voiceover, read the voice vo- voiceover, which actually is, it's very, very revealing about everything in the script, which we can get into why they cut that in uh, compared to uh, dream story, which is based on and, all that is very interesting. Well, what is so interesting on the subconscious level to someone watching Barry Lyndon the first time is they might not realize that the uh, the voiceover narration is actually predicting things that we kind of know we're going to see, but we don't see them yet. Like he, the line about uh, uh, the life conspire to leave Barry childless, that, that happens before. Uh, right. Brian Lyndon falls off the horse and, and it's right. throughout the whole story. And it's just a brilliant little turn of the screw on right. Kubrick's part to insert that into the way that 
that particular story is told uh, visually and then using that audio trick to kind of like mess with your advanced expectations. Right, because that was the whole theme of fate, essentially, which obviously Kubrick was very interested in that uh, in the future. When you first had this idea to re-edit Eyes Wide Shut, you must have been thinking, like, am I crazy to keep having this, you know, uh, this strong desire to attempt this? I mean, yeah. what, what are your recollections when you first set about deciding you had to do this? Well, one of the things that really hit me when I was when I was studying everything surrounding Eyes Wide Shut was the the reception that it received when it first came out. And even now, today, some of, a lot of those criticisms persist um, and they're very active. Um, a lot of people openly do not like Eyes Wide Shut. In fact, they actually, they, they're like reviled by it. In fact, my neighbor, she was, I told her about this project in, uh, a long time ago and she was like, oh, that's the only film I've ever walked out of the theaters on. Yeah. Um, and to be fair, like one of the main criticisms is the, obviously the pace of it. You know, um, yeah. then there was like that it, they thought it was going to be this uh, sexual romp, but it turned out to be this like story of sexual fear. Yeah. Um, which creeped them out. And then one of the criticisms that never sat right with me that I just I couldn't like it's not that I agree with those other criticisms, but I could I, I, I can easily understand them and why somebody would feel that way. But the one that I never understood was was criticisms of Tom Cruise's performance. Mm. And I was, and I would feel so crazy when I would like watch the film and I'm like, in, as an actor, you know, for, I've been acting for 15, 15 years, 15 plus years. And I would watch it and I'm going, there's not a, there's not a single false moment this guy is having. His, his performance is incredible. And And it got me thinking because I've had this experience where I gave what I felt when I gave it and my director felt when I gave it a very authentic, real performance. And then when reviews came out, it was kind of like, eh, on my performance. And it was really confusing for me. Um, and it actually was, it actually devastated me. And so I, I spent a long time trying to figure out like, why didn't my performance translate? This was early on for me as an actor. And that's when I started studying screenwriting and directing on an even deeper level, because I realized that the way the story was told and the way it was written actually caused the audience to not understand my character or to not tract with my character. And that translates to an audience as them thinking, Oh, the performance maybe is lacking. Because they can't see the mechanisms that go behind a performance that make something great. Exactly. Um, and which and, inverse, inversely means that you succeeded. Right. <laughs> exactly. And the, the, exactly. I, and the, the, the problem I had with this was that it was as no matter what, how good of an... I had to learn this kind of the hard way. I mean, it wasn't that... It, I, I didn't get that panned. But it was... I, I thought I would, my performance would have been lauded and it wasn't, it was like, it was like there was no mention. And so I kind of learned the hard way of like, as an actor, I'm only as good as the material I'm performing. And then as good as the filter of the director I am going through. Now, obviously Stanley is a great filter. So that led me to what about this, the, not necessarily the screenplay, because 
so much of Eyes Wide Shut was filmed improvisationally or uh, rewritten on set. But it was it was about the manner in which the story was told, which is very much an editing thing. Mm. And so and so I thought, well, my whole my whole aim for when I re-edited this was I didn't, I didn't think that the film needed to be cut. I I personally think the film's a masterpiece. I don't think it's a perfect film, but I personally think it's a masterpiece. Mm. I didn't think it needed to be cut, but I, I, I was interested in drawing something out of it. And what I wanted to draw out of it was Tom's performance. I wanted that to be the guiding thing through the whole film. Yeah. Because as it's told now, it's, one of the criticisms about it was that he went on this whole journey just because his wife had a dream. It's a very thin motivation for an actor to sustain two hours in 40 minutes. I mean, it's longer than 2001, a space odyssey. Yeah. You know, and this is all about a guy whose wife just told him that she, she really wanted to, to leave him for another man, you know? Right. And, and so I realized like, Tom was tasked with this impossible motivation in a story that deviates so much. And every time the story deviates from that razor thin motivation he has, it, it's, it tends to lose the audience and we lose track of why Bill is doing what Bill's doing. And we don't identify with Bill emotionally. So much is said about it being cold and you're not supposed to like the lead characters or identify with them, but at least you're supposed to understand them. Right. And that, right. That, that was, and then as I, and, and that was with a guiding thing that was my initial instinct about this was what is Bill thinking and feeling and how can I reveal that more? How can I keep the audience engaged in exactly what he's thinking and feeling as best as possible? Because obviously we can't, we can't know what he's thinking because there's no voiceover. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, Kubrick was a, was not a fan of uh, externalizing by dialogue, how characters felt internally. So, so yeah, that was the, that was the initial, that was the initial guiding principle of the whole thing of like, how can I draw out Bill's story? Thank God that that Kubrick didn't, you know, go for the VO in that case, because one of my uh, good buddies, like he loves uh, David Lynch's Dune and he knows it's a flawed film. And he's just like, oh, I just grew up watching it again. And, you know, so he loaned it to me. And I, I remember seeing it in the theater and then I saw it a few times in home video over the years. And I always tried to give it a, another chance. And I watched it again, like nice Blu-ray, you know, uh, transfer uh just last fall and there is just so much expository narration mm. with you know kyle mclaughlin's you know the close-up shot of his eyes and he's going the spice well okay to play devil's advocate to your point i mean yes yes absolutely and kubrick was absolutely a show don't tell uh director um but to the point of i've entertained like what would voiceover look like in the film, and then it makes me think of um, Little Children, which Todd Fields did. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it, it works so well in that film, and and it's a it's a it's a story about a marriage, and and honestly, it is very akin to Barry Lyndon. 
because I saw I saw Little Children before I saw Barry Lyndon, and I thought, wow, this voiceover is genius. How did he think to do this? And then when I saw Barry Lyndon, I was like, oh, duh. And then when I realized that uh, Todd was in, you know, in Eyes Wide Shut, I was like, ah, he uh, he borrowed that one from the master. Yeah. You couldn't, I mean, you could, obviously he did, but um, very interesting that that all ties together. But yeah, that was, that, that was the, to me, that was the crux, I think, of why Eyes Wide Shut took so long for Kubrick to adapt. Um simply because of how difficult it was to externalize this dream world that uh, that Arthur Schnitzler had sort of crafted so so perfectly that yeah. it was this it was this just beautiful blend of dream and reality and so much of it was driven uh, by Frito Lin's uh, who's translated to eyes why shut his bill Frito Lin's um, internal crisis of manhood you know, in sexuality, like, Mm -hmm. um, how, how would you translate this to film in a way that would communicate it? Funny enough is even though I instinctually was like, let me draw out Bill's journey. Let me draw out his emotional, physical journey, uh, as the guiding light for this edit. When I went back and studied the, the novella and, uh, and, and, um, Frederick Raphael's memoir about writing the film with Kubrick, it really struck me that like that much of what I cut actually actually was kind of closer to the novella and the things that were in the novella that I cut as well, like um, certain things that I realized like, Oh, it's because that didn't translate very well about because on, in the film, we don't know what's going on inside of bill. We never really know what is happening inside of him. Yeah. So a lot of the things that people love about the film say nothing about Bill. Um, uh, th- you and know, that, and I, then that became and it unique to your uh, journey. That in fact is what became your approach to deciding, you know, to make Eyes Wide Cut was to yeah. focus on that's that that's what makes it really fascinating to me and uh, obviously very unique uh, to to you and what you've done. I mean, and the, and the film has, you know, of course, I mean, talk about shelf life. It's, it's, it's grown and grown only exponentially in terms of its popularity. And, it, you Absolutely. know, you, you were saying that the, tr- the, the, the trials that, uh, 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 you know, uh, he went through in making it, of course, it's got the Guinness Book record. I think it's 400 straight days. And then, <laughs> you know, it, it came out and I, I saw it in the theater when it first came out and I was it was very bittersweet for me because I would I had waited uh 12 years since seeing Full Metal Jacket in the theater you know for you know my favorite filmmaker's next movie and he had he'd passed away and I left the theater feeling like you know confused you know disappointed kind of angst ridden um mm-hmm. and I, I was living in Boston at the time and I just remember walking all over Boston for like hours that night um I, 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 I'd gone to the theater with friends and then we kind of, I think we might've gone for a beer or something and then we were all going to go home and I just kept walking kind of like bill or something, but I wasn't, yeah. <laughs> I, I wasn't, I wasn't really, I, I wasn't, I, it's hard to explain. I wasn't really like needing that time to walk around by myself to kind of decide whether I liked it or not. I just couldn't stop thinking about it. 
And I knew mm-hmm. from my previous experiences that I was going to have to see it again. I was going to have to uh, give it more time. Um, because to be honest with you, I mean, I've seen a number of, of, of Tom Cruise performances, you know, and I've studied the, the craft. I'm a big fan of the craft of acting. And I always like to think anyway that, you know, I can tell when somebody's phoning it in, when something is genuine and authentic. I'm sure you know all about that. It's a whole other conversation we could have. Um, right. And what you're striving for. And, and, and a lot of us had frankly seen a number of Tom Cruise performances in other movies that were just, for me, they were underwhelming. And I don't need everybody to be Daniel Day-Lewis, but um, I know that at the time I saw Eyes Wide Shut, I was kind of prejudiced against not really wanting Cruise to be the lead in what, of course, turned out to be Stanley's last film. But I knew I couldn't stop thinking about it, and I ended up walking around until like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, And then, of course, you know, the DVD revolution, you know, had already happened in the late '90s. So as soon as it came out on DVD, I got it and I started watching it. I loved it a lot more, and it's 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 obviously only grown uh, exponentially, you know, in the years since. Now I'm going to touch upon the fact that seven years ago, when Stephen Rigg founded the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, um, you know, it was a much less discussed Kubrick film. You know, and in the seven years since, you know, he and James Marinaccio and subsequently myself, you know, and everyone in the group, frankly, all of our awesome members that are so active and cool, just we've only seen it grow and grow in terms of people wanting to discuss it, uh, sharing, you know, frank opinions about it. And to the the point, really, you know, being more open to it. So I think that, you know, everyone should definitely see your cut, should see Eyes Wide Cut. Um, you know, everyone that's in Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society that listens to Kubrick's universe, if you can hear my voice, please definitely see this because it's an essential, it's now become kind of an essential part of the discussion as I see it. Wow. I mean, you touched on something that was, that, that has been my experience thus far with Eyes Wide Cut is that, you know, obviously I made it for myself and then when I released it, it was, it it started to reveal itself to me of more what it was, you know? Uh, and one of the things that it, it, that I'm most excited about it serving is it's an opportunity to reconsider the film. Right. Now I want you to elaborate on the, 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 the thing you said that I believe was that when you started out, the, your aim was to quote, turn the dream into a fever dream, which I think is exactly awesome. Like, yeah, tell our listeners what you mean, what you meant by that. Well, is basically that Kubrick was so obsessed with capturing the dream world of the novella. In fact, when he was uh, when they started out with him and Frederick Raphael, uh, uh, Frederick uh, offered to him. He said, "So, you know, that's the crux of this, right? Is how much of this is going to be a dream, and how much is it's not going to be a dream?" And he said, "I." Frederick said, I, t- I tend to think that the whole thing is supposed to be a dream from the novella. And Kubrick said, well, we can't, we can't make the whole thing a dream. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, why not? And he's like, cause then if there's no reality, we have no movie. <laughs> and so right. Frederick was like, okay, maybe it'll be a blend. Um, and, uh, so he, he, there was this obsession with making it this dream. 
And so much of that dream-like tone comes from Bill wandering through the city on this odyssey in what I call the first, the first half of the film. I, I, that's like the dream where he arrives at the orgy. And then I, you know, I think that the dream-like state of the film starts when he, um, uh, uh, when he arrives at Marianne's house where her father has passed. Right, um, right. And he leaves it. That's actually kind of where it starts in the novella, too, is the dream world starts there, too. Um, the first quote, like, uh, in the book where it blends dream and reality is he's leaving her house, and he, he says he looks back and he can't tell if the people in, in that house uh, were real or not. Mm. And, that's where mm-hmm. he, and, and that's where he starts on this sort of journey into the night, where everything he he leaves the responsibilities of his life and being this doctor and a father and a husband and mm-hmm. uh, and the and this crisis of jealousy starts to to blossom inside of him and and he just gets taken away on this journey and so uh, so there was this this kind of need to create that dream world but not knowing exactly it, it, that's where it starts to get interpretive where it's like which ones feed the dream world, which ones don't. Um, and that's, that's what I was very interested in finding out. Right. Um, and so, uh, I think some of them do and some of them don't. Um, and the, the whole idea though was, I realized that some of these story elements just from a, a story angle could just be, they, they could be gone. And I would still completely understand all Everything you could intuit from the film, right? With those elements gone, and then the trick was: was does that ruin the dreamlike state of the film? Um, and so that was the that was the fine line that I that I was looking to, so that the dream became more focused because it does have this narrative in it that's a thriller, and it's like a you know a neo noir thriller, mm-hmm. and it gets obfuscated by this sort of you know odyssey of encountering these characters and then we're finding out you know about this or we're finding out about that or why did i go there i don't really know you know what i mean yeah Um, which to be fair like as a fan of the original film i like that you know and i like getting carried away in the same way that i like getting carried away uh in 2001 or carried away in barry linden and get swept up into a world yeah so i would never discredit the original and what's there. I love it. But at the same time, because there's this whole slew of people who don't like the film or don't understand the film, me, me trimming this down into quote unquote fever dream gives them an excuse to come back. Like that was my hope is like that we could drum up enough attention for it to make people make a decision on the original. And that's been the beauty of this whole thing is this this version of the film either reinforces why you love the the original or reveals to you to you what you didn't like about the original it becomes a litmus test yeah exactly that's perfectly stated that's what i was trying to say before about how you know your cut is kind of essential now because good bad or indifferent it does force you know kubrick fans and people who have an opinion one way or the other about his final film to re-examine it, it, you know, for their own perspective. In that yeah. sense, what you've contributed, like I said, it was trying to say, does make it essential, especially now to the discussion as it exists in, you know, 21st century media. 
because uh, everybody, right. you know, every everybody has to have an opinion. And um, <laughs> when when you go and do something like this, you know, you're not so oh, much I kicking see. a hornet's nest as you are kind of throwing a hat down in a ring and saying, OK, well, you know, if you don't like this, you know, consider, you know, your own uh, approach or whatever. And they, because you went and did it. It goes back to right. the thing about music. And also, I mean, to tie in with uh, music again, like I was listening the way you described how you could re have removed all of these scenes, shots, elements, and uh, you wouldn't miss anything. And that's a thing in music, too, which is, you know, some uh, uh, somebody once said that, you know, it's not the notes you play, it's the notes you don't play. Right. And, that, and that's something that's very essential in crafting really good music, I think, is a, is a less is more approach. It Well... I have to be careful about quantitative statements like that because I love <laughs> original so much. Of course. I myself, even though I'm biased uh, and I do like what I did, um, I, I, I it, every time I say anything that could disparage the original, my body like cringes and I'm like, Ugh, no, because <laughs> I do. I love the original. And, it's, and that's, I get a, it. that's a paradox that's really hard to communicate to people is that I both love the original and chopped it up. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> it's like the sacrifice of Isaac or something like biblical terms. Like it's like, yeah, he's my son, but I I need to right. sacrifice him, <laughs> you know? <laughs> To put it succinctly, I think that I think that if if the film works as a story without the scene mm -hmm. or the or that part, it begs the question, why is it there? And not even in a negative sense, but that becomes to me, it becomes a portal to a new a new way of looking at at and trying to understand Kubrick himself. Mm -hmm. It's like, why, who was he as an artist and as a filmmaker and as a storyteller that he considered that essential? Like he said with, with 2001, he said that it does take a few runnings to decide, you know, how long things should be, especially the ones which do not have narrative advancement as their guideline. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and very much so even with full metal jacket, uh, and, Almost every film that he did, he wanted to defy this sort of notion of a of a set form to film, and and I think that that was constantly on his mind of telling a story in a way that didn't have to be told by the numbers. Um, you mentioned that I just want to touch back because you mentioned that you know your um, idea, your focus was to center it around Bill's journey. So with that in mind, what was what your, your your other criteria what were any other criteria you had as to what could be removed and how did you decide what could go uh what had to stay and how that all came together well that sort of thinking happened after the, so the initial one was let me get in bill's head let me get in bill and if this doesn't affect bill or change his trajectory or motivate him or tie back to bill or reveal something about bill then it has to go that was the initial everything was cut along that line then when i came back and sort of analyzed it it was like okay does this is this is this what kubrick would have wanted cuz that's a is this what Kubrick was going for? What, Co what what was he going for? What was him and what were him and Frederick Raphael going for when they wrote the screenplay? What was Arthur Schnitzel's initial uh, initial uh, intention when he wrote the novella? So, 
that started to play in of like, okay, I had this instinct and now let me look at it from a, like get a huge macro view of everything and see if those instincts still hold up. Some of them did, uh, most of them did. And, and some of them didn't, uh, where I realized like, Oh, I got too, I got too choppy on that one or this, this didn't work there. And so I think about three or four of the initial edits that I made got changed. Um, I, I redacted them essentially uh, sure. after I did all my research. There are, uh, I believe, 28 establishing shots of New York City, and you cut 10 of them, uh, you know. Some of them, yeah, that's a really good point, because it was really interesting to me the way he used establishing shots. Um, sometimes it felt like, I mean, this is going to say, this is a critical statement, but sometimes I was like, is that a is that an establishing shot from Seinfeld? Like, just left over? Like, <laughs> like... <laughs> It they sort of felt like some of them just felt like they were just placeholders in a way. If you started hearing that really bad bass slap bass line, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think someone, someone, I think someone did cut a a, a trailer of Eyes Wide Shut, the '90s family comedy movie God. or family comedy sitcom. Um, yeah, but it was like, uh, and that's that's just precisely what Christopher Nolan when they interviewed Christopher Nolan about Eyes Wide Shut that he kind of harped on those specific shots um, as being evidence for why the film wasn't finished um, because they tended to the cut, the cuts, especially the audio was really harsh. So you'd go from this quiet scene to this harsh audio of the, uh, of the city. And you could argue that that was done on purpose, or you could argue that that was just not fixed. I mean, obviously they could have sweetened the audio and done a lot of things to the film Obviously, they were contractually obligated not to edit the film at all because mm-hmm. of uh, uh, Kubrick's contract with Warner Brothers. But they could they could put in the music, fix the sound, uh, obviously put bodies in front of naked people. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, so it, it I, I started to think, well, why are those establishing shots there? Some of them fell by the wayside just simply by the nature of a scene cut out or a character removed or um, uh, certain things like that. But then. There was a, a specific instance of one where when Bill leaves Marion's and that's where the dream world starts to begin, not only in the novella, but I think in, mm-hmm. in, in the film itself. And when he leaves, it goes to a wide shot of of the street and then to him cutting uh, to him walking. But when he leaves uh, Marion's, you see him walking out into the uh, into the background of the of the shot and then it fades slowly into the city where the sounds start to come in and they're so obtrusive. And it almost took me out of this sort of weird experience I just had where Marion's making out with him, but her dad's Mm -hmm. dead. And it was like Mm -hmm. this odd, such an odd thing. And then to have the sounds come at me like that. And I'm just looking at an empty city. I know he's walking out into New York city. Like I know he's already there. I didn't, I didn't necessarily need that information because I get that same information. If I cut straight to him walking, it's possibly fair to say that, you know, a few of those shots may well have been removed, you know, uh, if Kubrick had lived. I mean, yes, obviously you're, you want to be as diplomatic as possible because you don't want to be in the fire seat like me. But I think that I think that raises a really good point about The Shining. And I think The Shining serves as obviously he did. He did uh, edits to the ending of 2001 or edits to 2001 and The Shining after theatrical release. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but and, and he also did uh, the last minute edit to uh, Doctor Strange Love Ending with the pie scene gone. Yeah. But for me, this film that really serves as precedent and as a sort of a, hey, look at what Kubrick did over here. How could you think that he couldn't do that over here is The Shining. Um, Explain. And, and he, well, because, OK, first of all, the first edit he made of The Shining after it was in theaters was the scene at the end that sort of. Right, right. Almost. It wasn't an explanation, but it was like an ambiguous explanation that. You know, obviously, like that. Stuart Allman shows up at the hospital, right? And and they gives Danny the ball, and it was like you just didn't need it. You know what I mean? And 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 it sort of it didn't explain everything, but it explained what you couldn't explain, right? And that and and that reveals something about the Shining. It reveals something very interesting about the Shining, which is the supernatural, right? Because Kubrick obviously had his opinions about the supernatural, but. The Shining is a supernatural story. I mean, you've got uh, a hotel that uh, possesses people, right? You've got you've got the ball, you've got the photo, so you've got this whole element. And even when uh, Jan Harlan was quoted as saying that uh, when the crew and people on the set they they would ask him to do something and be like, "Well, what does this mean?" Like, and they would ask for interpretation, and he said Kubrick would say, "It doesn't it doesn't matter. It's a ghost story." Right, right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean, like. He he knew that he didn't have to explain anything, you know, and, and Jan even says it was it's really hard for people to believe that Kubrick didn't need a deep meaning behind it. It's um, just such a testament to him, though, is it not that like he was looking for w- any and all ways to remove that which might give more meaning. Yes. Ambiguity was a huge thing that Kubrick valued. He wanted the audience to discover it themselves. He he said this. It seems to me that works in which the meaning is all too clear are never as powerful and as evocative as works in which the meaning becomes clear and where you enjoy a thrill of discovery. Right, right. And then he he goes on to say, it's it's a more dangerous it's a more dangerous way to write because if the audience fails to discover what you mean, you're left quite disturbed. It's always safe. He says this. It's always safer to spell it out in the last scene and tell them exactly what you were after, which all too many people seem to do. But he himself had the penchant to do it, and then he would remove it. It's brilliant, <laughs> is it not? Yeah, yeah. And it's like that's a that quote. You could literally he uh you could literally take that him saying that about two thousand one, him saying that about The Shining, him saying that about Eyes Wide Shut, and here he was tasked once again with the supernatural, as it were, in Eyes Wide Shut of creating a dream world. And it and what strikes me as odd is that he was willing to go so far because The Shining was a ghost story, but with you know, to to establish that it wasn't real and there was this fantastical supernatural element of like ghosts, you know, creeping you out. But then when it came to eyes, watch out, he had this, it was a much finer, um, you know, um, uh, subtle, subtle dream world, right? Subtle element of the supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. And like where you only see it when it's like, where did the mask come from? Do you get what I mean? Yeah, totally. So that was what was really fascinating to me when, when I approached this whole thing was like, did what would Kubrick not just the establishing shots right but it's because I felt that one establishing shot broke the dream world for me it broke the uh that that sort of line for me in a way right right 
But then you get into like this, the entire character of Ziggler, right? And why he was created in the first place. If you read the memoir, you get into where the mask came from, mm-hmm. you know, the differences between the orgy and the, in the novella. And so it, it brings up a whole host of, of interpretation. And, um, and th- that was something I was very, very, I, I, I care, I care very much to retain that dream world. Well, now, since you bring up, uh, the Ziegler, uh, um, you cut about a, f- a 14 minute, uh, segment, you know, the one, the whole pool room scene, that was uh, the biggest cut you made. Can can we ask like, why, what, what was it about that scene yeah. that you felt that could be left out for you to propel the there story was- anyway? There was a few reasons of why I cut the Ziegler scene. Okay. All my my thoughts are racing so fast, so I'm going to try to articulate this as clearly as possible. The floor is yours, dude. So, number one, it was even though Ziegler was obfuscating the truth, right? Right. In that scene. And we we don't get the explanation that we kind of want throughout the whole film. Mm-hmm. But what Ziegler effectively does is he does deliver me a silver platter of what I'm supposed to interpret. Interesting. It's like, let's review over everything you've seen and let's talk about the nuances that all of them raised. And it was sort of like a pat on the back for the film that it was like, here's all the nuances we've raised and I'm going to offer you a glib answer that is going right. to not satisfy any of them and cause you to almost intellectually wrap your mind around everything you just saw at the height of Bill's emotional fever pitch. When Bill has just realized that there is the body that he caused, whether you could argue that he, whether it's the same girl or not, you could, you could argue all those things. But for Bill, his reality is that is the girl that sacrificed her life for me. Mm-hmm. And... I am now feeling the weight of all my actions, all of my deceit, all of these things, which culminates to carry over into when he finds the mask, right? Right. But here, now you've got to sit through 14 minutes after you've just went through, hopefully, some of what Bill went through. I mean, because of what I told you before, where his motivation is is blurred by all these things he encounters on this odyssey it's difficult enough to track with him emotionally because he's not vulnerable in any way so here you've been on this whole journey this dreamlike journey where you're like you're feeling that frustration of not knowing what it means and not knowing where it's going and then you have to sit through 14 minutes of of a pseudo explanation that sort of I mean, look, the scene is brilliant. It's an amazing scene. Sidney Pollock is freaking brilliant. The camera work is the camera work is fantastic. The allusion to him, you know, with the with the the cue ball banging it on the table, just like the the magistrate, as it were, uh, or the head of the orgy guy with with the red carpet and the red pool table and his, his staff. So, I'm not saying that the scene isn't brilliant. What I'm saying is, is a with it gone, you, you don't you don't miss anything. There's nothing that we gain from it. There's no escalation raised. There's nothing that, in fact, if you were going to say, does it escalate the circumstances or does it deescalate? You would say that it either keeps the, the stakes where they are or almost deescalates them in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, so, so, so then you look at, well, why is Ziegler there? So that was the first reason, right? 
the the second reason is is then it's like who is the character of Ziegler and what does he represent? And uh, on a on a close inspection or on a quick inspection of of the novella, you could see that he he's the he's the only he's one of the main inventions that uh, Kubrick and Raphael created. Right. It was one of the first things. It was one of the first things that they invented about the whole story. And and as a note, Frederick Raphael was really lobbying really hard for Kubrick to include the character of Ziegler simply because it gave the story a shape. And just having come off a Full Metal Jacket, Kubrick was saying, "I don't need shape." You know what I mean? A film doesn't need shape. And Frederick Raphael was saying, I'm an Oscar winner or I'm an Oscar nominee. Right. I, I need shape. You need shape. Otherwise, the audience is going to get pissed. And so they went back and forth about this Ziegler character, ultimately Kubrick arriving at, at keeping Ziegler. So it was like, well, if if he wasn't in the novella and he and here he doesn't necessarily do anything that changes the story or escalates the story in any way why is he there and well then, there there are three characters essentially that you you know trimmed rather excessively or you know veritably removed including you know of course Ziegler and then Milich and uh Sally so I'm just wondering what why do you think that those three characters in particular <coughs> could have been removed uh from the film without right. causing any issues to the story itself so we just Obviously, with Ziegler, like you, you have my reasons there. Is that it doesn't necessarily? I didn't completely remove Ziegler. He's still he's still there at the party in the opening. Mm-hmm. Um, um, as far as Millich goes, the reason why I didn't remove Millich, but I seriously cut down anything to do with his daughter, and the reason why. Number one, what does she? What does she have to do with Bill's with Bill? Like, how does Bill feel about that daughter? I mean, a very general uh, response would be to say, perhaps uh, in a, a, a strange way, he because she's so young and he is the father of a, a young daughter that he, you know, he's reviled or horrified by seeing that, you know, because he's on this journey of attempted, you know, sexual pursuit, and here he comes into this, you know, cul-de-sac where. He's uh, forced to confront, you know, a guy who knows he's pimping out his own daughter. Okay, so that's a good point. So would that make him more excited to go to the orgy or less excited to go to the orgy? That I, yeah, I got it. I, that I cannot answer, man. I mean, you bring up a good so question. That's where, okay, so that's where, because the context, A, it's not a story about Bill. It's a story about Millich and his daughter. So we deviate from the the psychological perspective of Bill, anything that would reveal anything about yeah. him. Then it presents us with, well, how do we incorporate this character? What does it mean? And then it, you start to see that it's 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 like orphaned from meaning because we don't know how Bill feels feels about it, and it, we never do know how Bill feels about it. That's very well put. And even more so. We're so excited that he's about to go to this orgy. There's passwords. There's costumes. Yeah, he's paying yeah, yeah. three times the the cost to get the costume, and then he's got to go in. There's these creepy guys. like it's at the it's like it reminds me of The Shining. There's this fever pitch, which is actually an argument for the the second argument for why the Ziegler scene is in The Shining when he realized in front of an audience, which he was denied of with eyes wide shut. He did not get to screen it in front of audience. And to both 2001 and The Shining, he changed those after theatrical release yep. because of the audience reaction. Same with 
Same with Dr. Strangelove. He took that custard scene out from an audience reaction. He was actually very open to audiences' reactions. It, it, it very much uh, solidified or made clear the things he needed to change. And I think that's why he had the penchant for last minute changes. But he was denied that with Eyes Wide Shut. Right. Right. So there was a fever pitch. There's a fever pitch going to the orgy and there's a fever pitch going uh, him discovering the mask at home. Right. Yeah. They're both different kinds of uh, culminations, but they're both very integral to me being engaged as an audience. So Kubrick's asking a lot of me when I'm so excited. He's like he's teasing me, essentially. Right. Like, I'm ready to go to this orgy, and now i got to yeah. figure out about this daughter and these guys she's sleeping with, and it makes me f- confront that this whole journey is disgusting, and, like, yeah. oh, my gosh, like, prostitution is nasty, and this whole idea of this sexual underbelly belly of society is morally corrupt. Mr. Millich, I've obviously left things a bit late tonight, so if you don't mind... Okay, you... okay, I'm in hurry too, doctor, to get back to bed. I understand. Shh. So, Black Cloak. Did you hear something? Mm. What is this? What is it? I can explain everything. You! What's that idea? I'll tell you. I promise I'll tell you. And you. Have you no sense of decency? Gentlemen! Have you no sense of decency? Milich, have you gone crazy? We were invited here by the young lady. Young lady, it is my daughter. And couldn't you see she is a child? You will have to explain to police. The police? You little whore, I tell you for this. I promise, I'll kill you! I'll kill you! Hold on to that gun for me, please! Milich, this is preposterous. The young lady invited us here. Couldn't you see she is deranged? Doctor, I'm sorry to keep you waiting. Gentlemen, this is now a police matter. You will please stay here until I return. Get us out of here! I'm afraid that's out of the question. Milich, Doctor, um, sorry, what color did you say? Uh, Black? Black. Gentlemen, please have the goodness to be quiet for the moment. Couldn't you see I tried to serve my customer? Sorry. And you, little whore, go to bed at once, you depraved creature. I deal with you as soon as I serve the gentleman. And and now I'm derailed. And I, and to be honest with you, I don't even, I don't even, I'm I'm now my eyes are opened to <laughs> what Bill's doing, and I'm no longer with Bill. I'm now intellectually considering what Bill is. Now, the other reason why is if you go back to the novella, there's a whole through line of Bill's crisis of identity, of of sexual and his sexuality and his masculinity that is so beautifully narrated throughout the novella that you just don't understand in Eyes Wide Shut. And particularly that 
that event with the daughter is only seen through understanding that theme throughout the film that that Arthur Schnitzler so beautifully wove in. Yeah. So now when I'm reading it in the book, it totally makes sense. And it adds to this turmoil developing in Bill, because what you what you don't learn from Eyes Wide Shut that you do learn from Dream Story is that that daughter reminded him of the girl he had a crush on in Denmark where they went on vacation at the beach, which is what translated the story where Alice, uh, where Alice saw the naval officer who she was attracted to. Well, in the book, Bill, um, Frito Lynn retorts to, um, uh, to quote unquote, Alice's story. Um, Albertine, um, sorry, I'm getting all the names mixed up now with the, the book and the, the movie. He retorts with telling telling uh, his wife about the the young girl he saw on the beach, which, as an aside, the young girl on the beach reminded him of his wife when she was younger, which is a theme in the book of all these girls reminding him of his wife when he when she was younger, which is why I think all the girls look the same in Eyes Wide Shut, where he was trying to translate that. But what you don't see is that now that that he kind of takes that experience and he starts to twist it into this whole idea that um, he's so filled with fear that he can't consummate um, with these women because he's terrified. He's also terrified that he's like um, not not like a soldier like he used once was or that he's afraid of a duel. That's why you have the frat boy scene and what that means to him. And it starts to bubble up this whole theme and story in Bill's psychology that you just never are attuned to in eyes wide shut at all. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And that those, those things ultimately was like, once that's gone, now what that scene with Millich represents is we needed to see we needed to see that Bill was desperate. Like, why is it there at all? Like, cause mm-hmm. where I cut it is when he's he offers to go uh I think three times over he at least doubles or three times over the rental price to rent the costume at two AM. Yeah, right. What that says to me is Bill is so desperate to have a sexual adventure to satisfy his 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 uh, insecurities that his wife stirred up that he is willing to pay a ridiculous amount of money wake up a guy at 2 a.m you know uh and essentially cajole him to get him this costume so that he can go to this orgy Mm. that's that's what that scene represents and then later it pays off when we find that he forgot the mask there right, is right. almost and, a bizarrely and, and, like farcical aspect to that whole part of it. It, 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 it totally is, and and that's well. When you look at when you research the people who were originally cast, he wanted to cast like Woody Allen or Steve Martin. He felt like I know, that this right. was going to be a sexual comedy. Tell me the story though before I go. Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. I hadn't. Uh, you went to London. This he would be seen, about nineteen eighty, so twenty years ago. Yeah, you go to London. Mm-hmm. He has seen you in the Jerk, or what? What was it? He saw me on a television show in London. Might yeah, but have had he seen a movie? Did he? He was. Had he corresponded with you before then, or not? No, no. So okay, no. pick it up. You tell me this. This story. Is, I, might, might even be before 1980 because I don't think the Jerk was out. But yeah. I, I had come to London to do my stand-up act on television, and then I got a call from Stanley Kubrick the next day saying I'd like to meet with you, and so I went to his. Uh, you know, a state, and uh, he he was just he, he pitched me 
what became Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, but and this was, was 1980, and it wasn't made yeah. until 1999. Right. It was based on a book by Schindler. Right. And uh, I think the book was called Rhapsody. Had different titles and different translations. And it was a you know enigmatic book, a beautiful, beautiful book. And then of course you know it never. Okay, but did did anything happen? Did he call you up and say, "Have you read the book?" Did you call him back and say, "I think this would make a great movie"? You was know, I didn't any... know that I was supposed to call Stanley Kubrick back. I, you know, <laughs> it was like, huh? What did you, you know? think was going I on? Went I went to his estate. We had dinner. We played chess. Oh, that's right. That was the other part. Yeah, we played chess. And he chess. was very good about at chess. Very good at chess. Yeah, yeah. Are you pretty good? I was. He okay. beat me. Let's put it that way. Yeah, but you, did yeah. you make it competitive for him? I think I did a bit. <laughs> yeah, a bit. Yeah. Because there is an element of comedy to it that that lends to that sort of farce element, which I think Kubrick looked for that element of farce and would ground it in reality uh, as much as he could and in all of his works. And that's why, you know, um, Steven Spielberg, who I love that quote, he said, Stanley taught us how to watch a movie. But in a, uh, but I think it was Sidney Pollack who said, you know, if, if it's in a Kubrick movie, it's the biggest, you know, like... If it's going to be a space movie, it's the biggest space yeah. movie of all time. If it's a dramatic scene, it's the most dramatic scene. So Kubrick was always looking for, how can I have this hyper-realistic representation that is completely 100% believable? Yeah. But, oh, to get back to to get back to the character of Sally, um, that's a very interesting one because I've read, I, th- I, think, I think there's two translations of dream story or Trom novel uh out there and i think in the translation i have i couldn't pick up where uh and i read it i read it twice recently where uh, the difference between sally uh her i don't think even think she has a name in the novella um but mm-hmm. her character in uh sally ha- uh mentions that um that domino gets aids and mitzi the girl that uh uh, in, uh, she gets syphilis, right? Right. In in the novella, but I couldn't actually. I went back to find that, and I couldn't even find that in the novella. And it's such a minor scene that they made more of a major scene um, in in uh, in Eyes Wide Shut. That it actually, I was like, um, I was like, huh? Well, okay, the um. Why why does that scene exist? Why is it there? Is it just simply to try to remain true to the novella right. and the adaptation to New York that she would have gotten AIDS modern day and that right. you know, this and the other? Or did it was it adding to the fact that maybe she was taken down by the Ziggler and his whole whole crew? Either way, it always sort of felt like a like a red herring to me or a MacGuffin because here at one sense he's sitting here talking and she's it, it was really confusing too that he was to me, the scene was so unclear and it didn't do anything for Bill's story. And actually it even, I think it made it more unclear of what he was going through psychologically because obviously he's just almost lost his life right? supposedly at this orgy. And now he's, um, he's come home and his wife has emasculated him even, even further by like saying she was, having sex with a hundred men in her dreams. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and then laughing at him. Right. So now he's like, got this moral, this moral crux added with inflamed jealousy. And that's where you see him. Um, 
he tries to uh, call back Marion, right, to to actually go and consummate that whole offering. And then Carl answers the phone. Hello? 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 And he's so, in that moment after he hangs up, he's so disturbed by the fact that he did that. Like he's, he's in this whole sea of all this that he goes, he goes, it, he goes directly to, um, to Domino's with a gift. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But it worked really well to have him just go walking in the street and then get followed. And it was like so fresh on your mind that it was like, he's here now tried again to cheat and then been thwarted. And then now he's being followed, which was the, the warning. So to me, it tied it up a lot nicer for a character that I felt like was, um, it ultimately just didn't deliver because you knew he didn't sleep with her. So, you know, you knew Bill didn't have AIDS and you, you right. know, the argument was, is that, Oh, well, this scene helps you go, whoo, dodged a bullet there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I don't, I don't want Bill to dodge bullets. He's in the middle of reaping the, he's reaping what he sowed. Essentially. He's getting the consequences to his actions, which he's now. And, and, and that, and that he calls Marion at all was enough for me to feel like, the jealousy in him was dying in the midst of these circumstances, you know, which is very interesting too. That's well said. Yeah. The jealousy in him was dying. That's interesting. And so it's to me, it really, it was similar to, um, the Sally scene was very similar to the frat boy scene in the beginning to me. Um, which by the way is the scene that I contemplate putting back in the most is the frat boy scene. The reason why is because so much of what's translated about those scenes and what they mean to Bill happen in the in the in the novella, but they don't happen in Eyes Wide Shut. She had a red rose in her mouth. She was doing a Mexican lap dance right in my face. Serious, I got scars on the back of my neck. Hey, 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 hey. what team's this switch hitter playing for? Looks like the pink team, this huh? This faggot. Faggot? <laughs> Merry Christmas, Mary. Hey, my brothers are back there. Prime cut of meat, baby. You want to take a ride in this bike? Tell you a different faggot. It's like we got a moon puncher going Man, on here, huh? You should so close. Get out of here. I got dumps that are bigger than you. Come oh, on, Macho Man. And when he gets hit by the frat boys, it's like it, it, the book ties it into a whole theme of him, you know, having this midlife crisis as a man. Is he tough anymore? Is he like a soldier? Could he take these guys if he fought them? And he starts to consider all that. And that fuels his inner jealousy for him to go and like, uh, to have a sexual conquest. Right. And so, mm-hmm. it, but, but that's all lost in the film. It, it's not actually, it's not lost in the film, but what it does is, is it, he's just left Marion's. He sees the couple making out. He thinks of the Naval officer in the same position, making out with, with Alice. Mm-hmm. And then, 
and then he's so disturbed by that thought and it that's when you get that great rear projection shot where it starts to i i believe that he's he starts using it there because that's where the dream world's coming in right mm-hmm. and then and then he he claps as a break like just like those establishing shots he breaks himself out of that dream world comes around the corner and gets hit yeah hit by these guys and it was redundant in a way because the hitting of it snaps him out of the dream world just like he just snapped himself out of the dream world and then at the same time it brings up this idea that he's emasculated by these guys but it never we never really feel like bill's being driven by him not being this tough guy you know or how other men perceive him or his fear to stand up to men we don't see it in the scene where bill I mean, maybe would have fought those guys or not. Like they don't mm-hmm. offer to fight him. You know, they don't give him the old pump fake where he cowers in fear, right. you know? So it doesn't establish essentially what that theme is in the book. And then it never really even pays off. And then once it's gone, it sort of just makes it more concise that he's driven by this jealousy, you know? So that was why I removed that. And that's why I removed the Sally scene because it's there, but it doesn't, it it doesn't further my understanding or anything. If anything, it, it makes it more unclear because actually Bill starts to make out with Sally and it's so weird. Like it is the most off-putting scene. <laughs> I, I would rather see him almost kiss a dead woman than I would see him after he knows that he almost died because of his, you know, promiscuity. So yeah, so that's why I removed it. And then once you, once you remove it and you see it, you, you're actually now tracking the the journey with him that's part of that whole fever dream thing is it, it, it creates this momentum and this um, sort of a more of a swept up feeling as you track with Bill. Right, All that right. said, I still watch Eyes Wide Shut in the full version and can appreciate all of those as it does. The film does have an independent theme that isn't in the novella, which is this whole idea of a sexually perverse society that's sort of like the wayward society, the powers that be the Illuminati or these elite circles mm-hmm. that is a more prevalent theme in, uh, in eyes wide shut. One blog that I read, the guy said that basically in the novella, you have this sexual odyssey coming forth from the insecurities of Fridolin where he's going out to meet this need within himself. And in eyes wide shut, it's almost like he's being attacked by sex. Right. Interesting. You you get what I mean? So yeah, absolutely. And, and so for fans of the people that most of these three characters honestly start to represent the milieu or the commentary that people love about Kubrick, where he makes commentary on society. Right? You have the daughter being onboarded into prostitution. You have the whole idea of AIDS and the cost of sexual promiscuity. And then you have Ziegler, who's like the 1%, and he's in these sexual societies that are essentially, some people have even connected it to MK Ultra and the whole idea of like the occult yeah. and sa- ritualistic sacrifice. So, and, and I don't think Kubrick got fully into that. It's really funny, actually, what they base that, the, that cult on in the book. It's really fascinating. Um, Frederick Raphael just invented this cult and um, sent it to Kubrick as a un, as a as a illegally recovered FBI document, and he got a call from Kubrick like immediately. He's like, "I need to know where you got that document." And he's like, "I made it up." And he's like, "Are you sure?" <laughs> like he was so freaked out that they had stumbled on some illegal like FBI right. you know uh, document, uh, but it was it was in a sense an amalgam of like the whole idea of a 
of an occult secret society, like the Freemasons or something like that. Um, sure. So, yeah. Well, that's rightfully something that so. Would... I mean, Kubrick, Kubrick, you know, did live through the generation that saw, you know, the scandal with the Pentagon Papers, you know, break, which ultimately, right. Nixon. you know, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. You've got Nixon, then you've got the 60s. Yeah, this, the sexual revolution and then the, and then AIDS. Yeah, exactly. So it all makes I all appreciate it. And I actually really enjoy that aspect of it. But for Eyes Wide Cut, the the for people that interpret the film as a commentary on those things and not as a film about sexual frustration within a marriage or or the the woes of trying to contain sexuality and monogamy, uh, like for the people that see it as like this sort of commentary on secret societies and Illuminati and those things. They'll be th- they'll be so so sorely disappointed. Sorely by disappointed, right? And you know, yeah. I was just going to add that you know, for you know what it's worth, like that's exactly why Eyes Wide Cut works for me. Um, I, I don't you know have, claim to say what anybody should feel about any Kubrick film, let alone Eyes Wide Shut. But I personally get turned off when as soon as somebody says, "Oh well, I mean, the whole movie was like you know he knew he was going to die, and it was a secret society plot, right. and it was all about the Illuminati." <laughs> And, you know, and he, everything all the way down the line to like that was their payback because he was going to talk about faking the moon landing and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that that is a, a background framework which exists, you know, as uh, mise-en-scene, if you will. But that's just there to tell us a story about the trials of marriage. And this and this is just one chapter of a marriage that we watch these two people go through and we basically just follow the male character on his one night journey and all that other stuff that you guys want to like read into Kubrick. Oh, he was, yes, but he had a 200 IQ and surely he must've meant to, you know, to tell a, a, a story about Bill and Alice as a ruse to uh, really tell us about secret societies. And I'm always just like, no, you know, it's the other way around. And if, you know, that's the end of the conversation with that person, Fine. So be it, you know, for me. So my point is, that's why I like Eyes Wide Cut personally, because I've always felt that what really needs to be focused on in order to enjoy when I finally came to the point where I could sit there and enjoy it and allow myself to be hypnotized and knowing the film, you know, scene by scene well enough that I I could know what was around the next corner. I knew what to expect. I, I was able to for my own, you know, edification and enjoyment, just kind of come away with this idea that, you know, I like the story about Bill and Alice. And, yeah. you know, no, 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 you know, it, it, we have to go back to 1999, too, because, you know, the uh, the limited promotional material that was being put out and the rumors that were out there was like, oh, he's making a porno. He's making an X-rated right. film that's going to have these scenes of graphic orgy depictions and stuff. And no, you know, everybody I think that went to see some kind of perverse, you know, Stanley Kubrick movie, you know, that was akin to pornography, of course, would have come away disappointed. But then it was probably the same, you know, persons who as time went on, they were like, well, what else can I get out of it? Ooh, secret societies. Yeah. And all the while, right. it's really just, it's a story about Bill and Alice. Right. Totally. I completely, I completely agree. Now, we should say, I am all game for Room 237. I love a good conspiracy theory. 
I love going down the rabbit hole of seeing if they can convince me. Most of the time, I'm not convinced. You know, most of the time, I err on on the simplest reason is the expl- explanation. You exactly. Know? Exactly. Um, but <clears throat> but I do enjoy having my mind expanded of the possibilities. And to be fair, in that right, if like even though I'm not necessarily like I'm not akin to believe conspiracy theories, um, it, in eyes wide cut as it stands. I still believe that all the things that you could intuit from Eyes Wide Shut about the about that whole secret society, about those themes, still very much exist. And in fact, fulfill exactly what, what Kubrick aim, what, aim was, was to produce that ambiguity where you don't know, where it isn't explained, where it's reserved why the mask is there or... Whether Ziegler, whether Ziegler was involved at all, and because he does, Ziegler's at the party. It does look like the party at the 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 uh, you know the the mass ball and the mm-hmm. and the uh, the Christmas ball, and so Ziegler's there. He goes up and he knows Ziegler, and then when he arrives at the orgy, he nods to him. So you could mm-hmm. very much still intuit all of the um, all the things you could intuit from the first film. They're just not readily sort of handed to it on the platter, which is what effectively happens when it between Ziegler and, and Bill in that, in that pool room scene. Yeah. So, so I think it's, I, you know, it's interesting, but it's very much what, um, I, I think is very akin to the shining and what, what happened with the shining where, um, Jan Harlan was quoted about saying that, you know, when he, when he said Kubrick would tell him it's a ghost story, it doesn't have any meaning that, that right. he and Kubrick were both offended by all the conspiracy theories that came out about, you know, that, that after Stanley died, he said, that's when all the conspiracy theories about the shining started to crop up. Um, yeah. He said some were funny and some were partly insulting. Well, I, and I think is, is you bring up something too, this is really interesting is, is the whole idea of like what people, what people invent around Kubrick and what Kubrick intended. Right. So a really great example of that, which I, it, which I think is an attribute to him opening the door to like semiotics and the, right. the whole idea of symbolism in his film and what things represent because he did that, because he was aware of that. What happens is, is that when actually Kubrick makes a mistake or there's a something by accident, they get attributed with deep meaning because people are akin to him already imbuing all his films with so mm-hmm. much symbolism with so much things so for instance there's that interview where where he brings up about full metal jacket i think it's the interview from rolling stone where he brings up that there's a there's a monolith in the background on fire in full right. metal jacket and kubrick was like yeah we noticed that it was completely by accident we noticed it later in the editing room and, and the interviewer says you know you're never going to convince anyone that that was an accident <laughs> and kubrick laughed you know but i think that um I think it's indicative of him as an artist that, you know, is it when you're working on the level that he works, even his mistakes sort of fall in line thematically, you know, or even his even his accidents fall in line with with everything that the films that that the film is saying, you know. Well, we we recently just spoke with someone uh, who would know very well the, you know, yes or no. Um, and I asked him about the uh, the chair behind Jack Nicholson uh, in The Shining and w- what it means or doesn't mean because it it disappears and then it's back. Right. And and very matter of factly, we were told, you know, Stanley just was going for which shot looked better. 
He was right. completely aware <laughs> of it being a continuity error. It was no right. big mystery that the chair should be gone and then replaced. Nonsense. He just or was one- looking for the shot. I want to. I want to uh, have you explain something for the listeners that because you were able to create this um, using what's called fair use, and your disclaimer on your website eyeswidecut.com uh, says that this you know was created using fair use, and they have of course gone on to uh, in the age of social media give us a whole world of fan edits, and I want to ask you how you think. Yeah, uh, they're affecting the original films. If you think they're, uh, you know, a good thing necessarily, or whatever your opinion may be, but firstly, if you could, you know, yeah, let's unpack fair use first. So, so the basic idea of fair use is that there's a stipulation that allows for the reuse of copyrighted material for the intended purposes of commentary, criticism, and education. Right. Um, all three of which you could argue. Eyes Wide Cut is doing. Um, but within that, within that, there are sort of certain like red flags that kind of uh, are harder to hold up in court, which is like the first one is how much of the copyright right, original material are you using? Mm-hmm. Which that would be honestly the the <laughs> the most gray area yeah, for right. Yeah, that's the rub for Eyes Wide Cut, because I mean essentially I'm using 120 minutes out of 160 minutes, so you do the math. Um and then um and then it's, um, are you selling it? No, I'm not selling it. So I'm not making any profit right, off of it. Right, right. Uh, and then one of the other main ones is, are you affecting the market of the original? So can it be proven that people are watching your version instead of watching the original version? Like, are you robbing them of money that would be had, had your version not existed? Right. Um, and I think to the argument of that is eyes wide shut. When I started this, there was no market for Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it had pretty much been completely disregarded because uh, I'm not the first to do this. Steven Soderbergh famously recut 2001. Honestly, I I haven't seen it, but from everything that I can gather of it, it looked really bad. Like, he just completely butchered it. Don't yeah. waste your time. He was so famous at the time and got so much press coverage for it. I think I think Warner Brothers had to put a cease and desist on it. Uh, they have not yet done that done that to me um so i i'm i'm i think i'm prepared for them if they're angry about it but one of the things that i took great care to do is um a is to make the section where i i try to bring education into it by teaching about editing by uh the cutting room floor section of my website where i have gifts of every single frame that was cut out of the film and then subsequent explanations and um and then um on the, and and also on each page of my website i have i i have a button for you to rent the film on amazon uh to watch the original so right right everything even though even though my intentions are innocent it doesn't make me innocent essentially yeah um, yeah i you I, know i catch your drift sure so so in that right that's kind of I, I don't even know if this recording could probably be used against me if it if it were to come in that. So I guess that's a call of urgency if you're interested in this of watching it as soon as possible because it might get more difficult to watch it later. Um, and I mean the thing is is that as far as fan edits go, I think it's I think it's a brilliant thing. I think that I think that it's amazing to me that 
it, it's been said that editing is the only true art form or the only original art form used in film. Uh, and it was invented solely because of film. And that's why is, is, you know, obviously like it uses photography, it uses audio recording, it uses music, it uses all these other disciplines, but the only one that's true and original to film is editing. And so the fact that it technology has made it to where everyone can participate in, in this art form of editing, the fan edit actually is this really beautiful sort of remix culture that allows us to express ourselves into actually you do it out of you don't do it because you hate the you you, you're you, not trying to one up right or some i mean maybe even if they are but then it's like then it's up to the market to decide did they one up it or did they not it's this sort of weird judicial arm of like film of like you know because obviously there's um on um I, I recently, actually, funny enough, I discovered fanedit.org. I don't know if you're familiar with fanedit.org, but I had no idea that there's a whole community online of like really serious and aggressive fan editors who like they've done like five and six films. They have voting monthly of like the best fan wow. edit of the month. Like it's a very seriously organized underground kind of like thing. Mm-hmm. I, and I had no idea about it, but when I found it, I felt free. I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, sure. I was like, I'm not abnormal. Because I've, I've had this burden of feeling like very isolated that I did this thing and uh, not even knowing if there were other people that were like me that loved something so much they wanted to chop it up, <laughs> you know, or repackage it or repurpose it. Are you still happy with your edit? Or are there scenes or shots that you would put back? Oh, gosh. You know, that's so funny because um, I am. But that's not to say that every single review I get on my site, every single reaction I read about it, I very much consider everyone's criticism of it. And I think, huh, does that make me want to put it back in the film? Like I recently had a buddy of mine who's a a very talented filmmaker and editor himself. And some of his arguments made me reopen the project and go and start to tinker with it, you know, and go, hmm. Like there's a couple things that I even now is, is I was preparing for this interview. Like there's certain things that I'm reconsidering changing to it that are minor. I reconsider everything. I, I, every time I read something about eyes wide shut, everything, I I'm always looking in the filter of like, Mm. did I, did I get this right? Am I threading that line? Should I put back in the millage stuff? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think about the millage stuff a lot. I think about the frat boy one the most because it's, it is, Arguably, with my first instinct to Bill's story, is the most directly revealing of what maybe is going on with Bill and his inner life and is the easiest to kind of put back in, even though I probably truncated a little bit. I think about my opening, like, it really frustrates me. I don't want to spoil the opening for anyone because I, I, I feel like that's the most exciting part of the, the cut because it, I wanted it, 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 the cut made sense to me. St- with what I was aiming to do. But then at the same time, it also serves as a way of like announcing, like, this is not the original, you know, this is a very different, this is a very different film. And, and will you come along with me? Um, And there's some limitations on that where I wish I could put a fade between the opening shots, but because they're pre-existing and I don't have the tails on them. The fade sort of fades into other. So you see like bill pop up kind of mysteriously when you try to fade these two shots together. Interesting. So there's little things like that, that it's like, yeah, I'm always thinking about, should I put that back in? Should I not? Should I do this? Yeah. Well, um, um, 
you know, I'd be remiss to not point out that, you know, as, as you know, you surely know there's been some negative, you know, brushback, uh, you know, and I just wondering how you respond to that. And, you know, do you do you feel you have any need to justify even if just to yourself, like why you went and did this? No, I don't necessarily. I I think I I don't think I need to justify it. I think I need to clarify it because right. so much of the negative criticism comes when people think that my version is an indictment of the original, mm-hmm. and that's really difficult for, for people to ascertain. That no, I'm not saying the original is bad. You know, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying this is better. What I am saying is, if this one, you know, is if this one could exist without that. Why is that there? And let's analyze that on a fair level. And then you, and then people who are unable to speak objectively about subjective things and know what's objective and what's subjective, that's where the conversations get really awesome. And if you go to the, the website, eyeswidecut.com, you can see how I respond to everyone. I take everyone's, um, everyone's criticism and their own opinions. And I invite people to, because part of, Part of what this project has proven to me to be is that I cut what I feel is the most you could cut out of the film while retaining that dreamlike essence. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to do like a sensible what Kubrick would have done, probably cut 15. I I think if you you had to pay me, if you had to like, if I had to bet like what, how much Kubrick would have cut out, I'm guessing he would have cut 15, 20 minutes. And I cut 40, right? So it's it's an obvious statement for me that it's like, I want to provide an anchor for you to say, oh, no, I would have put this back in. It's going to prove to you, like, if it's gone, it's going to prove to you, like, because that's what I implore people when they watch it. I say, look, watch mine for fun and and don't try to think of what the original was unless something comes up to you. Like if it, if it comes up as missing and you're not swept along by this version of the film, if it comes up, then, then an, let's analyze that. Why does it come up for you? Do you think it's a, an aspect of story and story continuity and whether it makes sense and you can track with it? Or is it because of something about you that you particularly like that scene or respond to it or feel that it, it draws out an aspect of the story that's important to you? Well, that's what it's about engagement. And I was just trying to add before that, you know, I think your website is great. I mean, it's beautifully designed. And, you know, Stephen and I particularly love the cutting room page uh, where you detail, you know, each cut with the time code, the duration and a note that like as to why you cut each part. So, you know, did you build the website? Because I want our yeah. listeners to to check it out. Yeah, I built the whole thing. I built the whole thing with myself with uh, Squarespace. And then I had a buddy of mine, Gabe, who is really talented at this stuff. He, I would, there would be blocks because I'm now I know how to do it. But at the time I didn't know how to do it. I would say, Hey, I want to get, I want to get a discussion thing put here. And there's like, there's a lot of forum help that you can do to like start to customize the existing Squarespace stuff. I know there's Mm -hmm. other ones that are really popular too, but I, I think there's a lot online about Squarespace and that's part of why I wanted to use it is because so many issues have been discussed already. So it's like a Google away to figure out how to do what I want to do with it um, and all that stuff. So, so on some of the more customized um, aspects of it, I had a little bit of help, but yeah, designed it myself. Interestingly enough, I appreciate your compliment about the cutting room because that actually took longer for me to do than the cut itself. Oh, I imagine. And it's not done. I'm always updating it because I'm 
I'm always learning more. I'm always understanding more. So I'm updating the first, the instinctual explanation of why it was cut, but then also the like educated researched, like as it ties into the novella. So I'm actually considering putting a section next to the explanation of the cut of how it holds up to the novella. And so you could actually do a comparison sort of as you see the images and what they mean to the, to the film itself, but then also compared to, to the original novella. So that's something I'm, that's in the works. It's just, it's just up to, you know, to people out there to discover it. And, uh, um, you know, for us to help put the word out, God, I feel like that. I feel like that astronaut. We're only too happy to to be able to oblige in 2001. (laughs) (laughs) It's just our job to help you do what you need to do. And we're only too happy to be able to oblige. Is that chicken? Something like it anyway. (laughs) Getting better at it all the time. Oh, man. (laughs) Good stuff. Well, man, we've kept you on a long time. and I don't want to keep you on as long. Did we cover everything? We pretty much did. I, I mean, I, I, have, I have, you know, two other questions I, I think I should ask. One is, uh, have you ever thought about re-editing any other films? That's a really great question. Yes. I'll start with Kubrick's first. I have thought about re, uh, re-editing some of other Kubrick works, and, I, and, I, and I'm torn. And the reason why I'm torn is because what gave me... Um, I wouldn't call it permission, but it felt more permissive for me to cut Eyes Wide Shut because Kubrick wasn't alive in the final months before the preparation. So it left an open-ended mystery. Where I run into a rub with other Kubrick films is he didn't re-edit them himself beyond what he already re-edited them. So he had time to sit, you know, and and reconsider them because he showed that he re-edited The Shining twice, like right after theatrical release and um and uh months later for the international release so it showed it showed me that if he wanted to re-edit it for whatever reason on some other thing he would have done it you know uh so i'm hesitant to do that with other kubrick works even though the ideas that i've had one was presented to me about full metal jacket and doing like an intercut version of full metal jacket which I think is really fascinating. I, I haven't like done, I haven't like gone back and reconsidered the film heavily enough to know if I would, if even that's possible or if it's um, something I would want to do. But that idea alone excites me. And then one that I have seriously considered and may do, but I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm so torn over that idea that uh, is to do 2001 A Space Modesty, which would be just, I want, I often want to watch 2001, but I don't often have the time, you know, like I want to be able to watch the 2001 and get the whole film without the time commitment. And I would want to create a version for those of you who want to like revel in it in a truncated, because I saw a 15 minute cut of the the Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't you tell us that you were like, you know, all about marriage and here you are like commitment phobic to a Kubrick film, dude? (laughs) Well, yeah, that's that. That's part of the the reverence of marriage is is heavily considering it before you commit because you understand the level of what that commitment entails. So I'm just, no, no, it's great though. It's great though. But you like how I wormed out of it, you see? I got I got my way out of that. I, Very man, cleverly. I, I, yeah, I'm Muhammad Ali. That question. Yes, um, you did, sir. So rope a dope. But yeah, that's something. I, that's something. I, I really 
I, I want. That's something I want for myself. I don't know if I would release that publicly. But I will I will say, I mean, you are aware that Kubrick himself was a fan editor. Meaning? Well, so he used to play this game with Sidney Pollack where he they would he would find a commercial and they would both cut different oh, yeah. versions of it to see who could cut it down to its most bare essential form yeah. and still communicate because Kubrick was obsessed with commercials and how much they could communicate in such a short period of time. And so here's Kubrick re-editing someone else's work. I mean, you know. I thought you were referring to uh, feature films, but no. No, no. Too cool. I mean, but still, you know, on that level, it, it, I think Kubrick was obsessed with economy of story, but then at the same time, not being held down by story, right? So that's where you see him breaking the rules of quote unquote principles of narrative of, of, of narrative screenplay, uh, you know, principles and things like that. But at the same time, he was obsessed with communicating the most, he was obsessed with density, you know, right. Uh, right. In that right. So I'm like, that's that's one little that's one little aside, one little story or anecdote that I hold on to that makes me think I think I think Cooper would have been initially highly annoyed of Ice White Cut mm-hmm. and would have had a knee jerk reaction of being bothered by it. But then I think there would have been another part of him that the chess player in him that would have been like, huh. You know, and 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 would have considered the move, and I think he, I think he would have sized it up to see if I was a real chess player or not. You know, right, right. So um, in doing in, in in answering that question for yourself, the, the the question I might ask is like, you know, forgive me if it's uh, uh, obtuse, but what is there anything that you hope that your version, eyes wide cut, that it achieves? Yes. Beyond what's okay. Yes. My hope for this film is what it served for me, which is a portal, a doorway, uh, a red carpet into a deep study and appreciation and honor for what I feel is the greatest filmmaker of all time. Right on. That this, yeah, that this would be that, this would be that runway for, for a young filmmaker who's intimidated by the gravity of all the surrounding things around his films that they would say, you know what? It's not, it's, it's amazing, but it's not precious. Let me get my hands dirty and let me learn from him and let me look from uh, an eye to eye view with Kubrick as opposed to a pedestal, which he himself, he himself told, it's one of my favorite quotes. He told Nicole Kidman, he said, never put me on a pedestal. Mm hmm. Um, and for the sole reason that it stifled creativity. Absolutely. No, I knew where you were going with that. Yeah. And you know that the, it was the other discovery, the other discovery that I made doing this project was just how much Kubrick was at the mercy of his audience and, and, and knew it that in, and how open and collaborative he was, you know, there was this, there's this sort of, like you said, this hermetic auteur, it's not just him as a person, but as an artist that he was this auteur domineering, stubborn guy and he wasn't he was so open to collaboration like you see it where yeah yeah with full metal jacket with lee ermy like you know just bringing him on and letting him improvise and seeing uh hearing the stories about how they um came up with 
different dialogue for all the scenes in Eyes Wide Shut and like on the day and they would just rewrite the scenes all day uh, before they shot them and then him being open to taking scenes out at the request of Warner Brothers and uh, being sad when the audience, you know, uh, didn't respond the way he wanted, but knowing that he was adjusting the film based on the audience screenings. Right. You know, this, it, it totally, it totally shatters this sort of like <sighs> this guy that I know what's better for the audience than the audience it, itself. And there are cases where he did, there are cases where he did. And that's, I think that's why we we speak of him as a genius. But well, he also managed to. I mean, he managed to uh, be able to be his own final arbiter of taste on you know what he right. wanted. But while at the same time, kind of like uh, 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 giving uh, you know uh, a, a few inches on the whole notion of like test marketing and you know screenings and such. And personally, like I'm not alone, but you know it's. It's it's a thing that just needs to be done away with, uh, in in my opinion. I mean, with few exceptions. I mean, I, personally, as a lifelong like cinephile, like I loathe the idea that movies have to be approved by the lowest common denominator in endless amounts of screenings and then sent back to recut as though we're all the same. Like as though, as though, as though. If you don't like that kind of movie, then don't see it. It doesn't matter. But Hollywood is doing not more than like churning out you know how many more marvel movies do we need right now because at the end of the day i've seen a good many of them and all i know is at the end of them you're left feeling the exact same emotion it doesn't matter which superhero it is they're gonna one of them's gonna die they're gonna set it up for another one they're gonna introduce a new character and there is no where is the next you know full metal jacket or eyes wide shut Blade Runner, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and on and on. Like, where is that? Well, I mean, you, we were seeing the emergence of, like, films films that became difficult to make in themselves became tentpoles. So, like, The Revenant, Black Swan, and so these certain event-level art films because of the difficulty level of actually making them, of, you know, of learning to, learning to do ballet, studying ballet for a year to be able to play the character, or, like... You know, literally climbing inside of a bear, you know, or whatever. Like, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, like the, there is there is a resurgence of that, or like the whole rope idea with um, uh, which Birdman, you know, where it's all done in one take essentially, but they stitched it together with new technology. I think that we're seeing the emergence of it. Just requires vision. It requires. I mean, look at Gravity. Gravity. You could say what you will about it as an art film, but gosh, what a ride! You know, it's the first film I bought in 3D. So I think, and I, th- I think we're seeing the emergence of, I think, I think we're seeing the emergence of a market. Cause that's at the end of the day with it, so many people don't understand about film and all these things and representation and all like say what you will about what films get made by whom and the gatekeepers and all that. The thing that talks is money. Of course. That's it. That's the, it's the, it's if there's a market, it will be fed. And if they can make money off it, it will be fed. And I don't care if you're an independent filmmaker or if you're a, a studio. Money is the is the grease that gets the wheels moving. Of course, yeah. And they, I so, mean, in Hollywood, the the directors are the princes, not the kings. So the kings are the what, people with the money. So what I would like to see is is like minded individuals like yourself and I who care about film as a medium of art, and and at the same time of it being 
because look, if Kubrick's films weren't entertaining, we wouldn't be talking, you know, so that, that thin line between entertainment and art, you know, is very necessary. Um, Oh, exactly. I I think the word would be compelling. So like, yes, yes, we, we need, we need that. So we need compelling films that touch us on a deep level. And I think what I would like to see is I, I, I'd almost like to see a, um, a sort of even more focused crowdfunding. I think crowdfunding has improved mightily with, uh, seed and spark coming up. And, um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, they, they distribute my short film, but what they're doing over there is, is, is revolutionary. It's amazing. So I would implore all, all people who have that passion to put your money where your mouth is and seek out, like you said, seek out and find yeah those people that want to do it and fund them and get them going. Cause, uh, I think we can see a, a revolution of, uh, another, another, um, Renaissance period of, of, uh, art film, you know, it, we, you're absolutely right. We certainly could be like on the cusp, you know, at the dawning and not really know it because, like you said, you know, these event pictures that are essentially art house films have really, you know, done an extraordinary thing. Even if they don't reach, you know, into middle America or the, the hearts of every person that goes, likes going to the movies, it really doesn't matter because we are kind of seeing something. And the films you brought up specifically, um, with Birdman, The Revenant, Gravity, and, and so forth. And I, I would just add, you know... Um, like Whiplash, Whiplash, La La Land, Damien, all the Damien Chazelle films. That's what he's doing is he's making it an event, you know, like, I mean, he, he is doing that very, very well. And I, I mean, the, the one that flew by my radar and I didn't know to see it until it was already on home video. Cause I just, I, I, I didn't know, but I ended up thoroughly enjoying it was Shape of Water. Mm. And it, there's, there's, a, I'll tell you why, man. I mean, there's. It's look, it's it's a Disney movie for grownups, as my, <laughs> my my buddy Scott says, and and he's right. But it worked for him. I love the color palette. Uh, I right. thought the characters were perfectly executed. I wasn't looking for it to be uh, the 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 footprint of any other type of director. I wasn't looking to see who was he influenced by here. I was frankly a little bored of uh, Del Toro after many years. I love Pan's Labyrinth. I do not enjoy his entire body of work. And so I, that's probably why I didn't end up seeing it. But where it became art house for just the moment that it needed to, to work for me as a whole, it boiled down to the one moment when she's with the merman in the kitchen and it goes to black and white and the mute girl suddenly begins to sing and it goes into a musical. And I, I don't know why, but I just, I felt that that was like just a beautiful thing that may, maybe it's been done before in some other way, but, uh, maybe I should have seen it coming and I didn't, but at the end of the day, I don't care. It's, it's like Kubrick said at the end of the day, the, 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 the final measure of, uh, what a film's worth is to us is simply the affection we do or do not have for it. Right. And that would tie it back into why I do feel like fan edits are important. It represents an affection for that film and it allows for the indulgence of it. Yeah, yeah, man, totally. I mean, it's the whole idea of like, how would I as an adult, like, if I had Pixar films when I was a kid, I would have been obsessed 
obsessed. And then they make short films that are off the thing. And I'm like, oh, it's just a whole world I could dive into. But as an adult, how am I supposed to fan out on my favorite works of art? I mean, I've always, everything I've ever loved in my life, I've made my own. Yep. Yeah, when I find a work of art, it reveals something to me about myself. Yep. And then in turn, I want to express myself through it. Mm-hmm. You get, that's what makes me want to like have the shirt that no one else has, has the poster that no one else has. I want to express my individuality through that thing. Um, I, I do not have, I know, I know exactly what you mean. And the thing it just brought to mind is like, I do not have, uh, a massive collection of guitars like other people I know, but the ones that I do have, uh, every one of them, whether it was a hand-me-down from my dad or it was, uh, uh, something I bought new or used, I have had to do some kind of modification to every one of my guitars to make it my own. <laughs> I totally understand that. I totally understand that. Yeah. And I mean, look, that's the brilliant thing about Kubrick and his boxes is that I think his works endure because his stories emerge like in a volcano eruption out of millions of years of like pressed earth and like, yeah. and, like and and dirt. And then it just emerges. The ones that do emerge are like full on volcanic eruptions. And then you get to go and study the whole mountains and islands that have spawned off of it. It's like, right. He, no one else. And this is saying a lot because there's a lot of really talented filmmakers throughout the last hundred years who were very obsessive in similar manner to Kubrick. But of all of them, it's hard to say any of them that were as obsessed as Kubrick. Like, that went that put as much into their stories as Kubrick. I mean, it was like, I mean, th- just the fact that Eyes Wide Shut came out of a third over thirty year frustration alone right. makes it tectonic in the fact that it even exists. You know that there that he himself each one of these films represents a certain monolith of his of who he was. You know, and his contribution to the society. So as a fan. Even if I may watch other films more than certain Kubrick films, each one of them I've done a deep dive on learning about it and the creation of it and what went into it and how he saw it and how it emerged and all the facets and everything that 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 makes that that imbues that work with so much significance and meaning. Right. Well, it, it sounds like you're probably perfectly suited to answer my last question and in some ways you may have already done just that with what you were just saying the last question we ask everyone is uh i think stanley kubrick the thing that stands out the most about him to me is that he was a normal a normal man who was so led by his passion he was willing to do and become what he needed to become to see that passion come to fruition. And if that meant being a genius, then by golly, he's going to become a genius. Wow. I don't think I could even think there's no way to say it better. You really just essentially encapsulated so much of why I've been unable to articulate all these years whatever it is that's drawn me to him you kind of just hit that on the head man marshall thank you wow 
Well, you're welcome. Thank you. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I don't know what to say to that, to your compliment, but thank you. I, I mean it though. That's wow. You know what? That thing when you like, you're, you, you know, you're reasonably articulate, you know, reasonably intelligent. And then there's just something you can't, but you, you know, you just, you just brought it out. Wow. That's exactly, if I'm going to become a G, if I have to become a genius, then I'll become a G. God damn it. This, this interview to me is the penalty. This is, this is the, this is the one thing that I couldn't even, I didn't even know what to imagine I wanted out of Eyes White Cut, but this is, this is it. Is this podcast doing this with you guys has become the most important thing for me. So I want it to freaking rock. And I want it, I want it to be an open door for people to reconsider eyes wide shut, reconsider eyes wide cut, and for them to catch the catch the passion with which this project allows them to to dive in on another level. You're here. Yeah. I mean, look, we're all here because of passion. Because look, I got like three other careers and three kids and a marriage, and like my wife's like, "Why are you slaving? Why are you reading that book again about Kubrick? Like, how is that making any money?" And I'm like, I don't know. I have to do it. One of the things that has fascinated me the most of all the critical elements about Eyes Eyes Wide Cut that all the people have brought out or edits they disagreed with, almost no one has identified the hardest cut that I had to make in the whole film. And it's almost, honestly, it's the most uh, game changing part of the, it's, it's the most deviating. It totally changes the ending. And almost no one has pointed it out. Go on. And it's, so basically when um, when Bill uh, goes to the morgue uh, to find who he thinks is Mandy's body. And, and, then, and then when he leaves, and he has that whole moment where he leans over the body. It's really creepy. It's actually really great to read the book about that because you find out why he's actually doing that. It's almost that magical element that I talked about that he was so adverse to or he was so challenged to include that that supernatural element or the magical element of eyes wide shut similar to the shining but he's leaning over this body and then it cuts to him walking out of the and he has this like and he opens his eyes what seems like for the first time to me that is the that is the titular moment that is where eyes wide shut gets fulfilled and he leaves the hospital he's walking and that's when ziggler calls him and he goes to ziggler's house right um and then and then after Ziggler's, he comes home in this sort of malaise, right? And he kind of like, he kind of like zombie-esque wanders through the house. And that's, you got the, you got the, um, the, the reveal of the mask to create the dramatic irony, which is a whole nother subject of topic. But basically what I did was I cut the Ziggler scene, which meant that I had to bridge the, I had to bridge him leaning over the dead body to him coming home and to him and, and, um, and, and it just didn't fit right. So I actually took uh, a, another shot from the film. It's the only shot I rearranged in the film, a wide shot of him walking on the street alone and a single car passes. It's so evocative. And I, and I had to stitch all three of those shots together. And so what I did was I actually combined two elements of the soundtrack. And I'm not kidding you. When I put it in, it fits so perfectly. It was odd. It was so odd and, and it's so seamless and it actually, there's a, it was so perfectly fit that down to the moment that, that Bill opens his eyes after leaning over the woman, uh, the biggest piano note in the whole song hits right on that moment. 
And when that happened and it came together like that, it gave me chills. It was one of those moments where I literally felt like I was at the mercy of the edit as opposed to being the one to execute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, that that moment of the unused soundtrack, right, and it coming together like that completely fulfilled for me exactly what happens to Bill is that he goes into this dream state and he comes out of it finally awake. Right. His eyes are finally opened. Right, right. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's what she says. It fulfills the, it fills the whole quote of the movie, uh, that, that they have at the, to me, it's both in the book and it's, um, and it's, uh, I'm going to pull it up real quick, but, um, that Alice says to him when they're in the toy store, right? So Mm -hmm. she says this, she says, um, I think we should be grateful that we've managed to survive through all of our adventures, whether they were real or only a dream. The important thing is we're awake now and hopefully for a long time to come. Mm -hmm. And to me, it was that moment in the morgue when he finally awoke is Mm. when, because really what's happening in that moment is he's actually being drawn to kiss her. He's having a a Mm -hmm. necrophiliac, sort of magical moment that is so he's gone that far down the rabbit hole too cool all this is doing to me is making me want to have a physical copy on my shelf <laughs> i got i got i got a uh, i got the mac mini hooked up to my flat well, screen so i can watch anything on it you know like movie quality on uh, on well the, the best way to watch it is uh is to like it so I left the option for you to like it because it's it's privately hosted through a certain site. I won't say, but you can. Well, I have to say actually, it's privately hosted through Vimeo, and so you can like it. And then uh, if you're logged into if if you go to Eyes Wide Cut and you're and you like it, and because you're logged onto your Vimeo account somewhere else, you can log onto your Vimeo account on like Apple TV or uh, any screen you want that takes that that has the Vimeo app, and you can go to your liked ones and watch it that way. I uh, streamed it through to my uh, large TV. Yeah, when oh, I nice. watched it, when I when I watched it, yeah. And I went to I went to painstaking details to get it at, at, at extremely high, like Apple level streaming quality. With with yeah, with the most accurate color that I could find, because there's 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 a lot of variation in the color on the film. Uh, so. I, I, that was one of the things I never told you guys this story, but basically like I cut the film and then sat on it for a whole year. And then when finally, when a buddy of mine was like, Hey, I'm, I rewatched the original. I'm ready to watch your version. That's when I started asking myself, like that's cause I started diving in to like reanalyze all these edits I made and wonder if they were even good or if they stood the test of time. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, why am I doing this? I was like, why am I so obsessed with this film? I thought, who is going to watch this? And I realized that the guy that wrote that article on No Film School, Justin Morrow, that inspired the cut, I thought, oh, well, maybe he would be interested in watching it. So I I cold messaged him on Twitter. I said, hey, man, uh, there's this article you wrote about four years ago. Um, I have something interesting that you may like based on your article. And he wrote me back like a couple hours later. He's like, what's that? And I said, well, because of your article, I recut Eyes Wide Shut. 
and he he didn't resp- all he responded was call me and he sent me his phone number we had yeah, a two hour conversation. conversation at the end of the conversation he said well you do realize you're screwed now and i said what do you mean he said i'm going to publish about your your cut whether you like it or not now that i know about it i'm going to write about it so you can choose to release it publicly or not i'm still going to write about it wow and that's that cool. was when i was like okay if he hadn't have said that i would never have released it publicly publicly that's what you call a nice problem to have exactly so that's why i say it was it wasn't this wasn't like born out of like a a need to get attention or anything like that it was just it it was actually drawn out of me it was it was almost i almost felt forced i felt like i feel like i've been on a journey or like led into this dreamlike state if you will about this whole project it's so odd to me that that I did this and that it worked and it's out there and there's people responding and I'm having these conversations. It's, it's very, very odd to me. Um, but I love it. I love it. Cause I'm, I'm completely obsessed. <laughs> I'm, I'm obsessed. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. Another one that was too much fun. Now it's over and done. It got brewed and stewed and then it was cooked and now it's in the books Big, big, big thanks to our friend Marshall Allman for spending his time with us and shedding so much good light on his passion project, Eyes Wide Cut. You can check it out for yourself at eyeswidecut.com. And while you're there, leave a comment on his site and let him know what you think of his project. And if you like or love Kubrick's final masterwork, Eyes Wide Shut, then odds are good you will also like or love the new book by Robert Kolker and Nathan Abrams called Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick, and the Making of His Final Film. And it is now available from Oxford University Press at many reputable booksellers' outlets, as well as some perhaps less than reputable booksellers, which might or might not require you to provide an unknowable password before they agree to sell you this Abrams and Kolker's fantastic new work. And we will be bringing you minty fresh new interviews when we chat with the authors in an upcoming episode. May I have the password, please? Fidelio. That's right, sir. That is the password for admittance. But may I ask, what is the password for the house? The password for the house. Yes. I'm sorry, I... I seem to have forgotten it. That's unfortunate. Because here, it doesn't matter whether you have forgotten it or if you never knew it. You will kindly remove it.
And to keep you in further taut suspense, we will also have another show dedicated to Eyes Wide Shut with none other than Red Cloak himself, the wonderful and unstoppable Leon Vitali, coming up in the not-too-distant future. Okay, we're asking everyone who enjoys our shows to please give it a rating and or a review. We make this show and bring it to you out of nothing but love for Stanley Kubrick and his unfailingly passionate fans. We do it on our own time, and we do it on our own dime. So, pretty please, be passionate enough to just take a moment and share your rating or review of Kubrick's universe. We care very much about bringing this show to you, doing it right, and doing justice to the legacy of our favorite filmmaker in this brave new digital world. And your support means we can keep going, keep new content, interviews, and episodes coming. It really does matter. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Please take a minute to just say, you dig it? Okay, once again, my deepest thanks to the usual suspects at Kubrick's Universe, Stephen Rigg, James Marinaccio, and Mark Lentz, for all of their efforts, and especially their wonderful natures and great humor. It's an honor for me to have such good friends in these guys, and I hope to always represent their hard Their hard-ons. I hope to represent your hard-ons. Yes. At an agency meeting. At a union meeting. I will represent your hard-ons at a union meeting. Very small. Okay, once again, my deepest thanks to the usual suspects at Kubrick's Universe, Stephen Rigg, James Marinaccio, and Mark Lentz for all of their efforts and especially their wonderful natures and great humor. It's an honor for me to have such good friends in these guys and I always hope to represent their hard work well. In case you were unaware, these three fellows run the preeminent group dedicated to Stanley Kubrick on Facebook. It is the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society. And if you haven't already joined, you should. Password? You don't need no stinking password. Just join the internet's most ongoing and fan-centric discussion about the maestro and check in anytime, 24-7, to share, learn, keep up, and receive satisfaction. Okay, we're going to leave you now with a track from the original soundtrack album, Two Eyes Wide Shut. It's a pretty little ditty performed by Victor Sylvester Orchestra called When I Fall in Love. So keep smiling through just like you always do, because we'll meet again. Until then, my fellow droogs, this is your host and humble narrator Jason Furlong saying, do what you feel, but keep both feet on the wheel. See you next time. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. All right. And there you have it.
These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm in good hands. Yeah, no, you gave him, you gave him the, the, the meat, you know, of the sandwich. Maybe I was like a slice of bread, and then he just goes, and he like, he's the chef, so not to worry. <laughs> all right, awesome. All right, guys. <laughs> all, right, you, all right, you slabs of meat, you, you ham sandwiches. <laughs> it's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. Yeah.